Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Highland Park Baptist Church. The preaching and teaching ministry of Highland Park is led by our pastor, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. Our desire is to help you grow in your faith so that you can better glorify God, make disciples, and love others. To learn more, visit us at hpbc.church. Now, here's this week's message. Acts chapter 5, the passage you just read is where I want to draw your attention this morning. This passage is hard, all right? That's just, it's difficult, it's challenging. And what we're going to do this morning is perhaps a little different in that we're going to divide our outline into two different sections. And on the back of your bulletin, you'll see this. One of the challenges with this text is when people read it, before they ever get to the place of trying to apply it, they have these struggles and they have these questions about, okay, what's happening and why? And, and sometimes we read it and we're, we're confused by it and we have a lot of questions and we never actually get to the application. So we're going to look at some of the questions that people commonly have. And I think in answering those questions then, it will enable us to be able to then apply the truths correctly to our lives. In a previous ministry where I was serving, we went in one day in the summer, day when it was supposed to get up close to 100 degrees, and the air conditioning wasn't working. It always breaks on those hot days, Right. It's never on those days where it's like, ah, we may not need it today. It's always when it's like 100 degrees. And so we had this big, we had several 10-ton units that cooled the auditorium. And so they go in, and, and these, one of the units is not working, and it's not cooling. And the service is just a couple hours away. And so we're, we're calling somebody in, kind of one of those emergency 24-hour AC repair guys. And we're trying to figure out what's going on, and nothing's working. It won't fire up. It won't cool. It's hot. I mean, it's to the point of you're, if you're sitting in the auditorium, you're uncomfortable and sweating, and it just wasn't a good thing. We said, we got to get this fixed. And so they're looking at everything. They, I mean, we got this big, huge unit, nothing working. And about an hour before the service start, the repairman came in. He said, I found the problem. He said, it wasn't anything with the big old thing. It, you had this fuse that was out. Little bitty fuse made that whole big thing not work. And what we're going to see this morning is sometimes in our lives, we may look at something and see, as that, see it as something really small. But in reality, something really small can cause big problems. Something really small in one little thing can affect a lot of people. And so what I'm going to challenge you all to do at the conclusion of the message this morning is to look in your life and to see if there's anything small that's wrong. Anything small that needs to be confessed. Because it's those small things that sometimes are easy to overlook that cause big problems. You ever had a splinter? They just ignore for a while what happens. Yeah, y'all, y'all been in there before. Yeah, it causes big problems eventually. So that's what we're going to see this morning. But this passage, again, is tough. It's sobering. I mean, imagine walking into a church service one day, giving a generous offering, the pastor looking at you saying, you, you're lying about this offering, and then you fall down dead. And then your, your spouse comes in three hours later, lies again, she falls down dead. So you came in for a worship service, you had two people buried. That phrase, they all were in great fear, that was real. I mean, this was a serious thing. But when we look at this passage and we look at this text, the question is, why? I mean, what's happening? Why is this happening? 
I want to set the stage a little bit. Jason read this to us, but I want to set the stage. We see two people, Ananias and Sapphira. While we don't know a lot about them, there are some things we can deduce about them. For instance, they're probably somewhat wealthy or at least had more than what they needed. You say, how do you know that? Well, they're selling land to give to the benefit of helping those in need. So, and if you were here last week, you'll know that this was not uncommon. I mean, they were coming to the church and people were selling the excess that they had in order to give to people who had needs. So they, they had excess. They had, there were things that they did not need. They could sell this land and still have everything that they needed without it having a real impact on them. They were most likely well-known. The fact that Luke is mentioning them by name indicates that they may have been prominent people within the church. And if not prominent people within the church, they're, they're at least well-known. People knew who Ananias and Sapphira were. People looked at them, and they, they understood that these were people who were involved in the ministry. And if you were in this church and the names Ananias and Sapphira were mentioned to you, you most likely had served with them and worked with them and ministered alongside them. These were not just some kind of fringe people in the church. They were involved. They were connected. They were apart, much like many of us. But what happens is next is somewhat unexpected. They decide to sell some of their land, and they own this land, and they had the right to do what they wanted to with this land. They sell some of this and they bring a portion of it to the church to do what everyone else is doing and give to those who had need. I mean, this is, a, this is a noble thing that they're doing. This is an act of generosity. But what happens next is the part that's confusing. They lie about how much they gave, and God strikes Ananias and Sapphira both dead. And it's those events that are difficult, isn't it? It's those events that are challenging, it's that part of the story where we look at it and say, why? I mean, why would God do this to these people? Well, what I want to do is begin by answering some of these questions. I mean, at the very, very outset, we should at least be reminded that God sees the reality of our hearts. I mean, before we ever even get to the text, let's just start there. There is nothing that we can hide in our hearts that God does not see. I mean, you may be able to hide it from everyone else, but when we came in this morning, God sees you. He sees your mind, your motives, your attitudes. He sees everything about you. You cannot hide. We cannot hide. I cannot hide anything from God. I mean, we could, we could stop, have an invitation, pray, and dismiss, and that's a good message right there. I mean, that's challenging. I mean, you may have walked in and have everyone else fooled, but not God. God sees your heart. Well, let's answer some of these questions. Here's the first question this morning. What was the offense? What was the offense? Understand that this offense had nothing to do with money. This has nothing to do with the fact that they sold their land for a certain amount and came in and only gave a portion of that. that the money has nothing to do with this. In fact, Peter looks at him and says, this is your land, you can do with it whatever you want. Why are you lying about this? So the issue is not the giving, the issue is not the money. That's simply the backdrop of the story. What is interesting, though, is as we read through this, we are shown things that kind of clue us in to the heart of the matter. For instance, in verse 3, you see that Peter asked him why he lied to the Holy Spirit. Again, Peter's getting to the heart of the matter. In verse 4, we learn that this was a premeditated deception. They had planned to do this thing in their heart. You see in verse 4 also that they lied to God. You see in verse 8 that Peter is now talking to his wife, and she lies directly to Peter. Verse 9, you see again the premeditation. She conspired with her husband to do what they were doing. In verse 9, I think that you really see the heart of the matter. You see the phrase in verse 9, why did you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? That's the offense. They were testing God. 
So when you look at this story, you say, okay, what did they do that was so bad? Well, what they did that was so bad was that. They tested God. That was the offense, testing God. In essence, here's what they did. They sat back and said, well, we know what God thinks about hypocrisy, and we know what God thinks about lying, and we know what God thinks about deceit, but we really don't think he takes it that seriously. We know that God is contrary to these things, but we think that he will somehow overlook it in our lives. We, we know that God hates deceit. We know that God hates hypocrisy, but he's really not that concerned with what happens in the church. After all, the church is new and the church is kind of just getting started. Certainly, God's not really going to care about what happens in the church, and he's not really going to care if we're hypocritical in the church, and he's really not going to care if we're deceitful in the church. They thought that they could walk into the church with premeditated hypocrisy and premeditated deceit and that God would look at them and say, you know what, I don't care. Not a big deal. They put God to the test. And listen, this is possible for us to do. In fact, you may be here this morning and this is what you're doing. You, In your mind and in your heart, you've premeditated hypocrisy and you have premeditated deceit. And in your mind, you think God really doesn't care about what I do. God really doesn't care about my heart. And I can walk into the church and I can have whatever attitude I want to have and be whatever kind of hypocrisy there is. God really doesn't care about that. And I can come into his church with the mindset that I want to have, the attitude that I want to have, the deceit that I want to have, and we can be tempted to think that God doesn't care. We can be tempted to think that God doesn't care about the purity in his church, and God doesn't care about holiness in his church. And we can walk in and say, you know what? I can live however I want to live, do whatever I want to do, come in and worship on Sundays, and God doesn't care a bit about that. They were putting God to the test. That was the heart of their offense. Even the lying wasn't the offense itself, but the fact that they thought they could do that and God didn't care. Have you ever done that? I mean, have you ever in your mind thought or knew of a sin in your heart, sin in your mind, and in your mind say, I don't need to confess that, I don't need to deal with that, God's not going to care, and you go on about worship and serving in the church, and you think God doesn't care. That was their offense. But this next question is perhaps the question that most people have. Number two, why the severity of the punishment? Because certainly this wasn't the only, these two weren't the only two to lie at church. I'm sure other people throughout history have lied in church, right? I mean, none of us, but I'm sure there's been some people who have been deceitful at church and hypocritical at church. But why would God strike them dead? I mean, why would God look at Ananias and Sapphira, see their offense, see their testing of God, see their deceit, see their hypocrisy, and say, the penalty for you is death? I mean, why the other people in this early church and the other people throughout history, why other people who have been guilty of the exact same thing, why did God not strike them dead? I mean, why, what is different about them? What is different about this situation? Because again, if this was how God always operated, then most of us here would be in trouble at least some point in our lives. This is the question that causes most people the most difficulty. I mean, it doesn't seem fair. Why did God punish them so severely? So why did God do it? Here's the answer. To make a statement to the church as it was formed. 
understand the backdrop of what is happening. The church is just getting started. The church was launched in Acts chapter 2. We're only in Acts chapter 5. It's new, it's fresh, it's beginning. Everything that is happening is happening for the very first time. The church is learning, the church is starting to grow. Everything that's happening and taking place is furthering the mission of the church. So picture it. These people that we just read about in Acts chapter 5 are living in this era in the formation of the church. Everything that is happening is setting a precedent for the generations to come. People who, like us, are going back to the book of Acts and saying, God, how do we be who you have called us to be, and how do we do what you have called us to do? And in our efforts to go back to this, we read through this passage, and so God understood there's going to be people looking, and in a way, I think God has included this in the book of Acts, and He's operating in this way as a way to show us in all generations what he thinks about the seriousness of sin in the church. It's as if God anticipated that people throughout the generations would be coming to this book and saying, God, how do we fulfill the mission that you have given us? And God looks at this first occasion of blatant disregard for hypocrisy, this premeditated deceit in the church, and says, I want generations of Christians to come to understand what I think about sin in the church. I want generations of Christians to come who are looking at the book of Acts, seeking to be a biblical church, seeking to pursue the mission, seeking to be what I've called them to be. I want them to understand that premeditated hypocrisy and deceit is something that I indeed care about. God knew that churches who allow blatant and premeditated hypocrisy and deceit in the church will not be able to accomplish the mission. So yes, God was punishing sin, but he was punishing sin in a specific way to let the church, generations to come, know what he thinks about that open, unrepentant sin. And what you and I have the responsibility of doing is as we read here in Acts chapter 5 and we see this example that has been given to understand that yes, God takes sin seriously. Even sin that is hidden in our heart, even sin that no one else may know about, God takes that sin seriously. So what was the result? Here's the third question. What was the result? We already mentioned it, but they feared God. They feared God. Notice verse 5. When he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead, and a great fear came on all who heard. Verse 11, then great fear came on the whole church and all who heard these things. Verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but the people praised them highly. I mean, do you see what's happening? Inside the church, people are looking and they're understanding God is serious about holiness. God is serious about purity. God is serious, serious about sin and the life of Christians and sin and the life of those in the church. But it's not just affecting those on the inside of the church. It's affecting those on the outside of the church. I mean, word is starting to spread. And people are hearing about what has taken place with Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, imagine that you're living in that community and you hear, you know what? Two people dropped dead in that church because of sin. Which church are you not going to go to? Right? But basically what's taking place is they are realizing that God is serious about sin. I mean, this reiterates what we see in Scripture. You cannot come to Christ for salvation without a willingness to forsake your sin. And so for those people looking at the early church, they're looking at this and saying, you know what, I'm not ready to give up my sin, and I'm surely not going to take my sin into the church. I mean, something might happen. 
this purity that God intended for the church and this holiness that God intended for the church, people around this time are looking at this and they understand it, they get it. I mean, what would it be like? I mean, I've tried, anytime I'm studying a passage of Scripture, I always try to place myself in that text. Imagine that you're sitting in the congregation and this happens. How would you like to be an usher in that church? The message that God cares about sin was clearly understood. I mean, one of the reasons why this is here in Acts chapter 5, so early in the formation of the church, in the building of the church, I think God wants us to understand He cares about sin in the church. He cares about holiness. He cares about purity. And the only way that a church can be holy and pure is if those who attend that church and go to that church are pursuing holiness and purity. And listen, we are not at all talking about perfection. Because if we were seeking perfection, none of us would have a chance, right? That's a little weak. I mean, none of us would even have a hope. None of us are perfect. None of us are sinless. And so that's not what we're talking about. But for a true believer in Christ, there should be this desire to pursue holiness. And there should be this desire to pursue purity. So what do we take away from this? I mean, I mean, hopefully now as you read this, and if you read this in years to come, you'll come to this and you'll understand what was taking place. The, the real offense was that they were testing God. The reason God acted so severely is he was setting a, a standard. He was communicating for generations to come what he thinks about sin in the church. And he is concerned about holiness and about purity. And that the result is that the people feared God. So what do we take away from that? Let me give you three things. All right, three things I think we have to understand. Here's the first one. God's plan is for purity in the church. God's plan is for purity in the church. I mean, I think it's the primary thing that we take away from this, is that a holy God instituted a holy church, and this holy God's plan for His holy church is that those in the church be holy and pure. I mean, if you are following a holy God and you are striving to be like a holy God, then your plan for your life should be to be holy. I mean, this means that we have to look at sin the exact same way that God looks at sin, and we have to take sin as seriously as God takes sin. We have to look at sin and be willing to agree with God about it. And once we agree with God about that sin, we are to forsake that sin completely. I mean, God's plan, God's desire, God's design is for the purity and holiness of the church, which means we have to take sin seriously. Now listen, this is not the popular part of the message, but it's equally as biblical as anything else I've ever said. We have to take sin seriously. I mean, people are fine going to a church that makes, you, makes them feel good, and they're fine going to a church that won't confront anything, but the Bible is clear that we have to confront sin. I mean, this is why there is, in Matthew 18... Jesus lays out a clearly defined process of church discipline. I mean, it's not one of those passages that we like to talk about and read about and discuss because it's uncomfortable. It's the reason why when you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there is a reason why church discipline is carried out. And just to kind of refresh our memory, if someone is living in open, ongoing, unrepentant sin, that sin is to be confronted. I mean, the Bible doesn't say if you feel like it. Everybody's like, I don't like this part. I mean, this is uncomfortable, right? But what Matthew 18 says, if, if, if there's a brother or sister living in open, unrepentant, ongoing sin, that you are to go to them individually. 
I thought about trying to get a volunteer to, this morning, but I was like, ah. I thought about getting Jason, but. So you go to that individual one-on-one, and, and you plead with them in humility and in love. You say, listen, I love you. You know how you're living, the sin in your life that, that's ongoing. You know that's opposed to God. God died his son to die for that. We've got to deal, build, deal with that. Please confess that. P- please repent of that. Please turn from that. And if they reject that and say, you know what? I don't care what you think or anybody else thinks. I don't care what God thinks. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue living in my sin. I don't care what anybody thinks. Then Matthew 18 says that you go to that individual, two or three people. You have witnesses. And again, you plead with them in love and humility. You understand that you are... You are it's easy for us to fall into those same sins. And so you plead with them and you pray with them and you beg them to turn from their sin. But Matthew 18, Jesus says that if they refuse to turn from their sin, and basically, again, if they say, I don't care what God thinks, that is to be brought to the church and the church is to remove them from the fellowship. That's what Matthew 18 says. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says. Many other pastors, again, it's not popular teaching, but it's biblical teaching. Why? It's reiterating what we read in Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, that God takes sin seriously. God is concerned about the purity of the church. God is concerned about the holiness of the church. And if we, his people, are also concerned with that, then we have to view sin the way he views sin and do what he says about it. God's plan is for the purity in the church. See, God's desire... It's for his holy church to further his holy kingdom, and that requires holy Christians. A church that is never, a church that is not concerned about sin, a church that ignores passages like 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, where where Peter quotes from the Old Testament where it says, Be holy, for I am holy, says God. People who ignore passages like that then really don't care about the mission that God has given them. See, all this is connected. See, if we stand and we say that we care about the mission that God has given us to proclaim the gospel and to take the message of Christ both locally and globally to those who need it, but yet we ignore sin, we care nothing about purity, we care nothing about holiness, we really don't care about the mission because our commitment to holiness and our commitment to purity has a direct impact on whether or not we actually do what God has called us to do. Churches and people who care nothing about holiness deep down really don't care about the mission. I mean, it sounds good, but they don't really understand what Christ is calling them to. We've got to take sin seriously. Why? Because God's plan is for the purity in the church. Number two, here's the second practical takeaway. Sin disrupts the unity and mission of the church. Sin disrupts the unity and mission of the church like nothing else. Sin that is allowed to fester, sin that is allowed to creep in, sin that is undealt with, sin that is unconfessed can hinder the unity in the church, and it can hinder the mission of the church. You say, how? Well, there's a parallel story in the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7, the nation of Israel is entering into this new era and that Moses has died off, and now they are getting ready, they're entering the promised land for the very first time. But in entering the promised land, there's some conquering and some battles that have to be won. There, there are some challenges, but there is this conquest that is taking place of the promised land. It has God's hand of blessing on it. But in order to possess this promised land and benefit from this promised land, they have to be willing to go to battle. And one of the first battles they face in Joshua chapter 7 is the battle of Jericho. Remember that one? 
Battle of Jericho. This city was huge. The walls of this city were so thick that chariots could drive on top of the walls. That's how big this city was. And so they get together, and I can imagine the military leaders devising this plan of how they're going to conquer this city. And Joshua goes, and he spends time praying with God, and God says, I've got the plan for you. Just march around it once a day for six days in silence. That makes a lot of sense. And on the seventh day, march around at seventh time, and on the seventh time, blow your trumpets and yell, and here's what's going to happen. When you do that, the walls are going to fall down. Okay. But they do it, and God honors what he said. They march around the city, and the walls cave in, in, and they win this battle. It's a huge milestone because God gave them the victory. That's the point. God wanted them to understand. They didn't do it. It was him. God's giving them this land. God's giving them this victory. And so they do this, but previous to going into the battle, God gave a very specific instruction. See, usually when they would go to war and they would have battles, the winning side, the winning country, the winning people would be allowed to take the spoils of war. They'd be able to go in and take the gold and the silver, and people could take that, and they could possess that, and that was legally their right. But God had told them this was different. When you go in, take nothing. Take none of the gold, take none of the silver, take none of the spoils of war, leave it all there. Everybody in the nation of Israel obeyed except one guy, a guy named Achan. And Achan, at the end of this battle, he saw this gold and silver laying there and he couldn't resist. And so he got it, he took it back to his tent, buried a hole, buried it under his tent, and went on like nothing was wrong. Well, the next battle they had to face after Jericho is the battle of Ai. And so they get ready to go to this battle of Ai. In fact, it's such a small town that Joshua just sends a few thousand troops. He's saying, we don't even need to take the whole army out there. This is not going to be any problem. But Ai destroys them. And Joshua is now confused. I mean, he's thinking, God, you want us to possess this land. You gave us Jericho. What's happening here? And After spending time with God, he understood that there was somebody in the nation of Israel, somebody in the army of Israel that did not obey. See, this conquering that was taking place and this conquest that was taking place and this progress that was taking place was hindered because of what? Sin. The entire nation of Israel was affected by this one person's sin. The entire army was affected because this one person refused to do what God wanted to do. And it wasn't until that was confessed and that was dealt with that the progress was, again, pursued and this conquest continued. But they had to deal with sin in one. It's the same thing in Acts chapter 5, and it's the same thing in Matthew 18, and the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5. The sin of one person, the sin of one family, the sin of one group of people can hinder the unity in the church, and it can hinder the mission of the church. See, don't ever sit back and think, well, what I do in my own personal life has no effect on anyone else, because that is wrong. Your sin affects others, and it can affect the church, and it can affect us pursuing the mission that God has given us. God takes sin seriously. I mean, it should be enough to know that God takes sin seriously for us to come and confess our sin and repent of our sin. But just kind of as a side motivation, how well we accomplish the mission God has given us is is directly connected to how consistently you and I pursue holiness. When we reject holiness, when we reject purity, our mission is hindered and our unity is in jeopardy. We've got to deal with sin we got to deal with sin. Number three, 
We are responsible for our response. We are responsible for our response. This is the third practical takeaway from this. So the question is, when we read passages like Joshua chapter 7, and Acts chapter 5, and Matthew chapter 18, and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we read all this, and we're faced with the reality that God cares about sin, and we're faced with the reality that God is concerned with your individual purity and your individual holiness, and we understand that God is concerned with purity in His church. How do we respond? I mean, I think the temptation is just to pack everything up and walk out and say, I'm glad I didn't live back then. But that's the wrong response. I mean, that, that's partial. Um, aren't you glad that God doesn't punish here the same way He did there? We'd have some interesting church services. So, but how do we respond? See, I think our response, our responsibility is to look at the reality of sin. We mentally, we emotionally grasp the severity of sinning against an infinitely holy God, and then we respond accordingly. Let me read you a couple of verses from the book of Psalm. Psalm 19, verse 14 says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord. Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24 says, Search me, God. And know my heart. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. See, the responsibility you and I have is to understand how God views sin and then beg God to show us sin in our lives. I mean, that's not fun. I mean, we like to think that we're doing pretty good, and we like to think that we kind of have it all together, but the, 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 the way that we respond to knowing that sin is against a holy God and God is expecting holiness is that we ask God to show us sin in our hearts, and God, show me sins in my mind, and show me sin in my life, and God, help me when I see that, when you show that to me. God, help me to confess that. See, here's the wonderful news. See, if we just look at this and we understand that we are sinful and that God is holy and that God expects holiness from us, we can be left with this picture that basically says we can never be good enough. You know what the truth is? We can never be good enough. That is the reality. But then we have to be reminded of passages like 1 John 1.9 that says if we confess our sins, that He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God's ability to cleanse us and God's ability to forgive us, forgive us is rooted in the sacrifice of Christ. See, it brings us back to the gospel. The reason we can read passages like this in Acts 5 and understand the reality of sin and the reality of holiness, and we can kind of work all this out, is that the gospel brings hope. The gospel is what allows us to say, yes, God is holy. Yes, I am sinful. What do I do about it? I run to Jesus. I run to the forgiveness of Christ. See, the reason why you and I should be eager for God to show us sin is because He has already paid the price for that sin through Christ. The reason why we should fall on our face and say, God, show me the sin in my life and show me the sin in my heart. Show me the things that I may even be overlooking. And we welcome God doing that and we ask God to do that and we are eager for God to do that is because we know that when we see that, if we simply confess, God has promised to forgive based on the sacrifice of Christ. See, the gospel brings hope to hopeless situations. The gospel brings forgiveness where forgiveness is needed. 
So don't sit back and think, well, I don't want to be confronted with my sin. Listen, Christ has already been confronted with your sin, and he's already paid the price for your sin. What we do is we are confronted with our sin, and we run to Christ with that, embracing the grace and embracing the mercy and embracing the forgiveness that only God can give through Christ. That is good news. See, the bad news is God expects holiness, and we're unholy. The good news is God already knew that, and made provision for that through Christ. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to have a time where we pray that passage I just read in our own hearts, in our own minds, and we say, God, show me sin. Because what's happening right now in many of us, I think, and this is true wherever we go, is we have this big air conditioning unit that has all this ability and all this power and this, all this potential The little fuse has gone out, and we're not willing to deal with the fuse. And that fuse that's gone out in many of our lives is that sin that we've not been willing to confess. We're not going to sing this morning. I'm just going to have the instruments play, because I want you to focus on asking God to show you sin in your heart, your mind, and your life, and then I want you to confess it. And we confess it with joy, because we already have the promise of forgiveness. We confess it with eagerness because we already have the promise of cleansing. Will you stand with me this morning? I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, and then as the instruments play, you need to do business with God. I'll be standing down front. Pastor Jason will be close by. If you need someone to pray with you, we'll be happy to do that. But this is, more than anything else, this is a time for you simply to listen to God. And so I want you to pray two things. One, God, show me sin in my heart and my life. And then two, pray, God, forgive me. And then you can add in on third, thank you, God, for your forgiveness. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have any questions or want to know more about having a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us online at hpbc.church. Please join us again next week as together we seek to know Christ and make Him known.